The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. So many of you probably remember we're looking at this particular map of the Buddhas and trying to make it our own map and realize the real value of having a map of the different tendencies of the mind that distort perception, the different tendencies of the mind that weigh it down. And those are the two qualities or the two characteristics of what we call a hindrance, something that's hindering the balance of the mind. And we find them or we discover them because we catch those hindrances distorting our perception and we catch, notice the weight that they, it's a burden on the heart. You know, it's one thing for us to say now to each other that aversion is a bad quality to have in our mind. But it's, powerfully uh, transforming to directly, in the moment, directly see the effect of aversion, like if we're caught in fear, caught in boredom, caught in hatred, to directly see how it's skewing or distorting how we understand the moment, how we're relating, what we're making up about what's happening. The presence, the affecting presence of the pattern of aversion, whatever quality that aversion is, anything from boredom or impatience all the way to rage and hatred, resentment, to really see that it actually changes reality because reality is a constructed thing. You know, what we're taking this to be or what this seems to us to be has everything to do with what the mind is constructing telling itself about it. And if the mind is under the influence of aversion, then the kind of story, so to speak, we're going to tell ourselves is, of course, affected by the aversion itself. And then the other point, the other characteristic of these hindrances is it's quite simple. They hurt. And again, this isn't theoretic, theoretical, just like, of course, we know that Anger is unpleasant, but it's different to actually in the moment see that there is anger in the mind, there is impatience or boredom or fear in the mind, and this is how it feels. This is the feeling tone of that anger. And we, just by the very nature of these hindrances, we always miss or not always, but we often miss these two characteristics of the hindrances. And it's the not seeing that it's distorting perception and that it hurts means we're not really seeing that it's a hindrance. That's why anger seems so rational a lot of the time. It seems appropriate. I mean, this would be so useful. This is why it's so useful to have a good Dharma friend, another person who's close to you who does this practice, Because you can sit down with that person and you can share 
the different ways that fear and anger and impatience and jealousy and, and all the different kinds of aversion, how in the moment of our life it just seems so appropriate to be jealous, to be envious, to be angry, to be resentful, to be self-righteous. It appears in the moment, in that context with the mind distorted in the way that it's distorted, the distortion makes the anger seem rational, functional. Like it actually leads to something that we want or that you know, is good for us. So uh, I think I mentioned last week that I was going to talk about dullness and restlessness, two of the other hindrances tonight. But I think I'll just talk about aversion and then we'll go on to those other two next week. So just to remember the map, we have sense, desire, craving, wanting. We have ill will or aversion or fear, all the different qualities, all the different ways really that the mind rejects the present moment, pushes it away. Greed, we're rejecting the present moment by wanting something, but you can't want something without rejecting this. If I think it would be so wonderful if I got in shape, then this not being in shape is not acceptable. This moment is not acceptable. So it's a rejection. Even though my attention might be, oh, it would be so nice to be able to run five miles or to be able to... I was talking to somebody today on the phone who's got a goal to do 10,000 push-ups. There's <laughs> a person who's really struggled in his life off and on and, and uh, had some difficulties and he's just really feeling a lot of uh, just good feelings like confidence being able to apply himself to something wholesome and started doing push-ups trying to do 100 a day so he can get to 10,000 and uh, so he wants me to do some <laughs> and I was so inspired last week when he told me this. I said, absolutely, I'm going to do it too. I'm going to try to do at least 10 a day. And I really believed that. And then I talked to him today and I'd totally forgotten <laughs> what a good idea that seemed to be. So it still seems like a good idea. So we have this map of the hindrances. We... We want to appreciate how, as a human being that has a mind and body, how important it is for us to very quickly recognize the different tendencies of the mind or um, qualities of mind that hinder it, that hinder the mind itself. Hinder it in the sense of distorting it and making it hurt. Right? I mean, this just makes so much sense to me. I'm assuming it does to you. Like... Given that we have a mind, it makes so much sense that we would want to be to recognize like problems. It's the same thing like if you're going to be a farmer, you're going to want to recognize basic weather patterns. Like, you know, it's not raining and we need rain. Or basic insect patterns. And so we have a mind, but we don't respect that fact I mean it's amazing this is really an expression of ignorance that we have a mind and yet haven't completely uh, got how relevant it is to map it out like 
what makes it so difficult or so unpleasant to have a mind sometimes? Well, it falls into the hole of anger or into greed or into dullness or restlessness or doubt, these five hindrances. So it's really worth, you know, as we're doing these weeks, taking the time to really reflect, you know, to hear the, the Buddhist teachings about each of the five hindrances, but even more importantly than to take those reflections from the Buddha and from me and others that you might hear and just kind of clarify like how that particular tendency, how does aversion operate in your mind? How does it manifest? All the little and big places in your life. And what are the triggers, the supporting causes for it? And what, what ways of understanding or ways of being cause the hindrance of aversion to fall away? or prevented from arising. These would just be really important understandings to have about our mind. In the tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, there's you know, two basic approaches, just to keep it simple, of working with anger. And it has, to some degree, has to do with your personality type, like if in general your tendency is to turn the hatred inward, to hate yourself, to feel unworthy, to feel a lot of shame or self-judgment, then the approach to the anger might be one of great patience. Like we have to see and understand that tendency to hate ourselves, not to feel good enough to doubt that we can. You know, a lot of times these hindrances team up with another. So doubt and anger, doubt and aversion can come together. Like hating ourselves and having doubt we can do something in a way that just causes our mind to spin, not get anywhere, not land on anything. And this is... a. Uh, in Joseph's chapter, in his book on mindfulness, he talks about this approach by quoting uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, a well-known Buddhist meditation teacher. You might have heard of him. He's quite famous now. He's written dozens of books, including one on anger. So this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. The Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. So when we notice a lot of self-hatred, it's not our instinct to hold that yucky feeling of self-hatred in our arms with utmost tenderness. You see how the way to work with the hindrances whatever one it might be, we're talking about aversion tonight, but is to relate to it not in the way we're conditioned to relate to it. You know, hatred tends to trigger more hatred. So when we do have enough clarity to notice a lot of self-hatred, what is our first instinct? To hate that we've got self-hatred. So... And it makes a lot of sense then in this situation that somebody like Thich Nhat Hanh would suggest that we hold it with the utmost tenderness. He goes on, 
then the anger is no longer alone. It is with your mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom. Because the sunlight penetrates deep into the flower. Now I find this really useful, this, um, in a sense, giving a visceral quality to mindfulness. So mindfulness has this warmth of the sun. You know, it's patient and it's healing. You know what it's like. We haven't had a lot of warm days and perhaps in the last 10 days when we've had a few warm days, you've gotten in the sun for the first time in the year. And just sitting, especially in the morning, Gabe, one of our leaders here, and Wynn, my wife, leader here, and I went out to Kamagran's new retreat property to do some work last Thursday. And we left really early, um, I think at 5.30. And so we got there pretty early. And the sun was just really starting to shine. And there's a little old playhouse that some community members are turning into a sauna <coughs> for retreatants. And uh, so we were sitting there, and the sun was just coming. And it just felt so nice to hear all the birds, to be out in the country, out of the city, and to feel sunshine, just like penetrating the skin. And, and the body yielding, you know, when it's a little cool, and we haven't been in the sun in a long time, we're really happy to yield to the warmth, not to like oh, worry about skin cancer, or, but just to sort of let it in. And you really feel like if you're sensitive, you, you actually let, you feel it penetrating into the depth of the body. And so, this is a useful, like we need this skillful means when we, when we discern, when we pick up, sense some self-hatred, doubt, not being good enough, judging ourselves. We have to have that kind of patient glow, you know, that looking at it, but we're looking at it with tenderness, with a compassionate eyes. Because this is the antidote for taking it personally. The reason we hate our self-hatred is it feels so personal, like I'm personally bad to be caught in that again. So we want to hate it. So you can remember this image. You know, sometimes images are a powerful way to remember the teaching. So to have that sense of the sun hitting a flower early in the morning. You know how so many of the flowers do close down, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggests at night, because of the cool. And then just to see how, in a sense, the sunlight relaxes the flower, like makes it feel safe to expose itself. You know how fragile flowers are. You know, and so it's okay. I'm gonna. I'm willing to open up. I'm willing to let it all hang out, to all move. And you know, we can't really learn anything about self-hatred unless we see it. And in order to see it, we have to let it hang out. It, I mean, it has to express itself. How else are we going to know what self-hatred, self-judgment is? Feelings of unworthiness. We have to see it. He goes on, there's one more paragraph here. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, 
mindfulness particles will infiltrate, infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It is bound to open itself and reveal its heart to the sun. If you keep breathing on your anger, shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. And as I mentioned, this is the transformation. It's the not understanding anger that gives it so much strength. And why don't we understand anger? Because it appears, from our ordinary, distracted point of view, it appears dangerous to open to the pain of anger. As if feeling what it feels like to be impatient, like just something ordinary, like being in traffic, or doing something embarrassing. It feels dangerous to relax what that feels like, that, self, that self-hatred or embarrassment or that you know, anger at somebody else. So we tend to continue in a way that the mind is well-greased, which is to project it outward, either out there or, in a sense, outward on ourselves. We objectify, and I know it sounds weird, but this is exactly what the mind does. We objectify ourselves as the bad one, who's no good, never will be good, or we objectify somebody else, you know, the bad guy out there who's making us angry. You can't be angry without an object to blame or to project the anger on. There's an interesting story in the tradition. I've said it a number of times. You probably have heard me, but just briefly. It's as if you're rowing a boat in the middle of the night across a body of water, and you're rowing, you're rowing, and you ram into another boat, and you immediately start to curse. You know, like, I've got a lamp. The person should have seen me. You know, what the hell were they doing? And you take your lamp and you... And you realize there's nobody in the other boat. And so it's really hard to stay angry at that boat, given that there's nobody in it. But as soon as, or whenever we had the idea that there's somebody in it, then there's somebody who could be stupid, somebody who should have known better, and on and on like that. So remember that strategy. So if your tendency around aversion, anger, fear is more inward, then this quality of tenderness, metta is the word for loving kindness or karuna for compassion, these qualities are really important, patience, forgiveness. But if your tendency with anger, habit with anger is much more about externalizing it, blaming, indulging in the feeling of how, you know, that powerful feeling of self-righteousness. You idiot. You know, and then sort of building a sense of self up by creating the bad guy who's wrong and, and should be punished. And Then we need to use some of that powerful discerning energy as a sort of wisdom. You know, enough to really see that that kind of spinning with self-righteousness or wanting revenge 
to really honestly see what a dead end it is. A dead end is actually a good phrase. Like, it doesn't go anywhere. And the image that's used in the tradition is like, if you want to get even with someone and there just happens to be a bunch of red-hot metal balls sitting in a fire, you just say, I'm going to throw one. And of course, immediately your hand starts to burn. You may or may not hit that person with it, but you're definitely going to get badly burned by the anger. So seeing, having some sense of how destructive the anger is, this powerful, it's like a more fierce parental energy, right? A good parent can be the kind of parent that holds the child lovingly with utmost tenderness, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. But to be a good parent, you also have to be fierce and be able to raise your voice and uh, know <laughs> enough. I've been mentioning in the other weekly practice groups you know, where I've been giving this talk, this scene from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf stands on that bridge and says, you shall not pass to that demon-like beast deep in the, the caves, the mines of Moria, I think it is, you know, where they were being chased by the orcs, but then it turns out there's even something worse. <laughs> and just that uh, clarity we can have sometimes. No, we may or may not win, but there's, it's appropriate when we see the mind doing something that isn't helpful. It's really appropriate to name that internally in some way that seems skillful. Like, this is not helping. Even though we get sucked into it the next moment, in that moment, acting on that insight that this actually isn't helpful, naming that strengthens that clarity, makes it, makes it uh, more likely that the mind won't forget, won't get sucked in. Joseph quotes one of his teachers, somebody I've, Wynn and I have studied with as well, famous Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, who's known as a, a really fierce, demanding teacher. And, and he says, pulverize the defilement, show them no mercy. So there's definitely this warrior energy, and it's not, it's not really appropriate to say, well, that's not who I am. You know, I'm not that warrior type. Those of us who tend to be warrior types, great. Use it appropriately. Those of us who tend not to be warrior types, we have to find that within us. Same thing. Those of us who tend to be, you know, have that capacity to pick the child up and say, I'm with you. And to hold the child with utmost tenderness, you know, great. And those of us who don't have that quality, we have to develop it. Like to be a well-rounded human being, spiritual practitioner, we need to have that fierce warrior energy with aversion, and we need to have that great patience, forgiveness, tenderness with all of our different patterns of aversion and fear and anger. And it's like when we always use the same strategy to work with or transform these afflictive states of mind, we're eventually going to hit a wall because the situation is asking for a different strategy. 
And, of course, we always lead with what we're good at. So if we're good at being that sort of fierce wisdom, sort of wisdom, it's just a thought, it's just an emotion, you know, that's kind of playing the wisdom card. Well, that will work, you know, maybe half of the time. But what about the other half? (laughs) You know, it needs a different kind of medicine of patience and forgiveness and real interest and a willingness to get close as if it's never going to go away. And uh, like Thich Nhat Hanh says, shine that kind attention, no matter how long it takes, with great confidence that eventually the kind attention will penetrate deep into the aversive pattern and the mind, the heart will understand it's just nature, it's not self. I don't need to be afraid of you. I don't need to identify with you, and I don't need to be afraid of you. It's this understanding that really transforms these patterns. You know, we have to find our way in to all of the afflictive patterns. Tonight we're talking about aversion, which is a big one. It said, I don't know how true it is, and I'm not sure we could actually figure it out, but I've heard it said a couple times, a number of times actually, that culturally speaking, at the time of the Buddha, the cultural tendency was much more toward being a greedy type. And that this day and age, culturally, we have a lot more fear and aversion, you know, relatively speaking. Not to, I mean, clearly, there's greed. <laughs> But it may be useful in terms of how we understand the teachings. Like, and I, I've heard, uh, I think Thich Nhat Hanh, well, actually it's in the tradition, you know, that, uh, yeah, I think the Buddha said that the next Buddha, see, the Buddha is a being that arises when Everybody's forgotten the teachings of the previous Buddha. So it's a title. The Buddha is not a person. It's a title of somebody who awakens to the truth of things. So a lot of people, I mean, relatively speaking, there are a lot of people who awaken to the truth. But to be a Buddha, you have to awaken to the truth and have a personality that allows you to articulate what you've realized, the insights you've realized, so that it powerfully supports other people having the same insight that you had. But they have the insight because they're supported by your articulation, your teachings. So we can't be Buddhas because we have the teachings of a Buddha, right? So technically speaking, nobody in this room in this lifetime can be a Buddha. But you can be fully awake, just like a Buddha is fully awake, but your awakening awakening was supported by a teacher, right? By the teachings of the Buddha. So... In the tradition, it said that, I think the Buddha said, the next Buddha will be called Maitreya, metta, basically, loving-kindness, will be a Buddha uh, named after loving-kindness. And uh, so that's uh, maybe the Buddha intuited that, you know, civilization or humankind would gravitate toward more aversion because... Part of of what really helps us see into aversion is loving-kindness. And it's not that loving-kindness itself transforms the aversion, 
but it allows us to be close, right? Because in a way, when the heart has compassion or kindness or forgiveness, you know, one of the flavors of love, it's a, it's like immunity from the seductive effect of anger. We can be close to it without getting sucked in. The Buddha says that anger is murderously sweet, or another way that that phrase is translated as honey-tipped. So there's a sweetness to anger, but it has a poisoned root. And I've been thinking about, I've been reflecting both, you know, in terms of my own experience of aversion and fear, defensiveness, insecurity, and the aversion to insecurity, not being in control, and the aversion to not being in control. In light of this murderously sweet, like what is the honey-tipped quality of aversion? And what I find, you know, it's obvious with things like self-righteousness, that when the mind is really caught in, let's say, self-righteousness, it organizes our mind in a powerful way. You know, a lot of life, it's not, it's a little confusing. Like, who am I? Or what should I do? Or what should I say next? Or how should I handle this? Or, you know, what should I do? Or who should I be with? What should I wear today? I mean, how do you figure these things out? There's not actually a right answer to any of these mundane or more sort of important questions. We tell ourselves there's a right answer. I'm meant to be with this person or I think I'm going to wear these khakis today. But there's not actually a right answer or a wrong answer. We pretend there is because it you know, like gives us meaning or it makes things a little bit more simple. So when something comes around like a politician doing something really stupid or we ourselves do something really stupid, our mind can organize itself very strongly around self-hatred, around self-righteousness about how stupid politicians are or something like that. And we feel coherent. You know, there's a cohering quality to the anger, whether it's self-anger or anger at somebody else. Like, it gives us meaning. And that's such an um, antidote to the uncertainty and the, in a deeper sense, whatever th- this, you know, lived experience, the way it is, it's unformed. There's a powerfully, uh, there's a powerful quality of things, everything being unformed undefined, ungovernable. So the mind tends to, the conditioned mind, the egocentric mind, tends to want to jump on anything that comes around, comes our way, that sort of, in a sense, pulls the ego together, creates an organizing principle for the ego for a while. Same with lust, you know, and and strong attachment and strong desire. Doesn't that have a strong organizing quality for our minds? Okay, I have meaning. You know, I've got a. We're going to build a porch. When and I, my wife and I, have been talking about building a porch on our house. You know, and got these visions of how nice it could hang out there. Maybe sleep there in the summertime on hot nights, or you know, who knows what. 
have our morning beverage out there, listening to the sound of the birds. And it's like life has meaning. Okay, we got to find the money, we got to find the builder, we've got to just figure out the design, we got to, you know, and it's like we have meaning. Or we, you know, we got to take care of the cat. The cat gives us meaning, you know. It's like a lot of people have children for that reason. It's like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, well, let's get pregnant. <laughs> and then we got something to do for, you know, 25 or 7 years. And it and it's like we don't have to worry about the questions like what's important because having kids creates something that's important. So in a in a more sort of moment by moment way, anger does that for us. Something that's upsetting, something that's disturbing. It kind of gives us meaning. So this is that murderously sweet quality to anger, to aversion. And we really need to pick it up because it's the not seeing that it's actually sweet. There's a sweetness to it. There's a juiciness to it. This, this coalescing of the mind, the heart, so that we appreciate why is it that we keep falling into that hole? Why do I keep revisiting these places of resentment, these places of self-righteousness, these places of self-hatred, self-judgment. It makes sense. So on a, on a certain level, it, it's rational. From, an ego, from a, a mind that's driven by egocentric needs, it makes sense because the anger delivers something to this pattern of self-centeredness. It makes self-centeredness feel centered or grounded or permanent and real. So it gets what it's looking for. Oh, I knew I was real. Right? It's like, how can I not be real when I feel this clear anger? Of course I'm real. I'm the one who's angry. I'm the one who wants this to stop. I'm the one who's afraid. I'm the one who feels terrorized, a victim. I'm the one who's no good. You see this in very painful ways. I used to work in the schools, uh, including Minneapolis public schools, as a behavior specialist and working with children, having difficult time in that environment. And one of the really sad things to see with young children, even even like I worked with uh, special ed uh, preschool special ed students, as well as all the way up to junior high, but even really young kids, you see that they can gravitate toward an identity of being the bad kid, that somehow that was um, worthwhile because at least it gave them the identity. So I can't be a good kid, and I need to be somebody, so I guess I'll be the bad kid. And then, of course, playing that out. So I guess that looks like this. So then when the adult does this, I do this, because that goes with that identity. You know, and of course we're all playing out an identity too. Because from an egocentric point of view, it feels more comfortable to have a strong sense of who I am. I'm the one who's upset by seeing a dead squirrel on the road. When I've been walking to the center for the morning set, and I don't know, maybe a week ago or so, a squirrel got hit just on the side of the road. So you see it, we pass by it every time. And it's just so interesting to watch my mind about, like, not wanting to see it. And then, like, 
And then that sort of, but I should look at it, you know, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> and just all the different identities, like the identity of being the one who's afraid of death, or not even death as much as decay. It's like that, that sort of being eaten by insects, the body being eaten by insects, you know, I'm not alone here. That's a disturbing thing for humans, a lot of us humans, to see and to kind of really relax with. And then all the other, you know, identities we have, like I mentioned, being the Buddhist who, who should be interested, who should be relaxed with, wanting to learn something from. Last week I mentioned these uh, basic reflections uh, um, to work with aversion. So I just want to go through them again because I think they're really useful to memorize because we're going to get trapped in aversion as well as greed and other of these hindrances and it's nice to be able to bring this information up in our mind. So the first thing we want to do is we want to remember it feels like something. So, oh, okay, how does this feel? So you notice you've been spinning with resentment for a while about some problem at work or whatever, a relationship issue or whatever it might be. And then you remember, usually it's like the experience of suffering itself that wakes us up. And so this first question makes a lot of sense. Okay, how does this feel? Having been spinning, having been thinking the thoughts that I've been thinking, how does this feel in the mind and body right now? And this is the first step towards stabilizing the attention with the way things are. So being lost in thought is being disconnected from the way things are. It seems like we're with the way things are, but that's because of delusion. Our thoughts about things are never the thing in themselves. You know, the thought, for example, the thought, I'm at Common Ground on Wednesday night, is not the experience, the direct, immediate experience of being at Common Ground on Wednesday night. You see the difference? But doesn't it seem that way? Like you having the thought, oh yeah, I'm listening to Mark, it's Wednesday night, I'm at Common Ground. That seems like reality, that thought, comprehending that thought. It seems like that's reality, but it's a thought. It's just a thought. The reality is, reality is non-conceptual. So there may be a thought in our non-conceptual reality, but a thought, from a non-conceptual point of view, it's just a thought. It's just a mental activity. It's actually pretty ephemeral. I mean, what is a thought when the mind is not seduced or caught by the content of that thought. I mean, what is a thought as a mental phenomenon? It's really not much of anything. But it's the identifying process or attachment process that gives thoughts or the painting of our thoughts, the kind of concept of our thoughts. It gives it a sense of depth or personal meaning, but it's the squeeze in the heart that gives it meaning. The suffering itself is what gives our thoughts uh, the quality that seduces us. It's so amazing. It's like magic. The Buddha actually likens it, this whole cognitive processing, he likens it to a mag magician's trick. So... You know, these images, and it's poets have used this as well as Buddhists over the centuries, you know, this um, mirage or this illusion 
of that the cognitive or thinking process causes. So the first step is to drop into more immediate, direct experience. It's just energetically, how does this feel to be resentful? And then if you have enough steadiness, enough equanimity to just not be afraid of that, what it feels like to have been spinning, then just continue. If you can't be with it, then it's actually better to redirect your attention because otherwise you're just going to keep spinning, reinforcing the identification with you know, the resentment. As the example I'm using now, feeling a lot of resentment. So it'd be better to basically say, you know, this isn't helping. Let's go pay attention to this. Let's go take a walk in the woods. Or let's go talk to a friend. Or let's reflect on how much I care about my cat or how much compassion I have for myself being stuck in resentment. So we're finding some way not to get drawn into that proliferation around the resentment. But if you have enough stability, then go from the initial seeing, oh, this feels like this, to a more subtle teasing apart the feeling from the content. So you're, you're really tuning in, like what's really going on, and you realize that what's really going on actually has nothing to do with the story. So let's say we're resentful of um, a boss, and she doesn't recognize us, you know, doesn't appreciate the hard work, how committed we are, and we really resent that, that she favors somebody else and ignores us doesn't seem fair, and it really bothers us. And so the initial step is just to know, okay, this is what that feels like. And then, then we're really looking more deeply, like what is the mind actually in this moment resisting? Because now we've got a little distance from the thought of my boss, the thought of her not liking me, and all that stuff. And we're right at the fe- level of feeling, the unpleasantness, the yucky feeling. And then we're realizing energetically the issue is there's a sense of not wanting to feel this yucky feeling. Like somehow thinking it doesn't belong or thinking that the yucky feeling is dangerous. So all of that doesn't need the story at all. You don't need the image of your boss. You don't need the image that she does this or doesn't do that because you're working at it in this very immediate, direct level of feeling the feeling and realizing you don't want to feel the feeling and just aware of that whole dynamic. So now you've got some intimacy with the way it is, with Dhamma, how it is. And in this moment, you can ask the question, is the anger, is the resentment helpful? Like, why be angry? Why go back to that story? Well, the, the, the kind of superficial answer is it feels a lot safer to be spinning with that story about my boss not recognizing me and da-da-da-da-da than to be in this very wild world of unpleasantness because the mind or the heart feels very undefended, very exposed 
Because in this place, in this mindful, wise place, the mind is, like you can't get there without being undefended. Mindfulness, by definition, is a non-controlling, undefended awareness. Right? It's like letting the moment be what it is, because you can't be aware of how things are and trying to control it at the same time. In the same way that a scientist can't study something and be manipulating it at the same time. Because the involvement skews what's going on. So when we're mindfully aware of, let's call it resentment, but now in a more refined state that's not involving the story of who I am resentful of, but just the feeling of resentment itself, the dynamic of resentment itself, which I'm talking about is not wanting to feel a feeling, then we really see that the anger, the resentment, the, on the level of like a mental activity is completely unnecessary, unproductive. So that question, like, why anger? Is it necessary? Or really, two questions. Why does the mind go to anger? Go back to the resentment. Is it necessary for the mind to do that? That, if you just are really patient asking those kinds of questions at that subtle level, you will, at least with that moment of anger, transform it. And you might experience, as many of us have many times, being caught in anger, really feeling the unpleasantness of it, and then in a moment, experiencing the release of it. It no longer exists in the body and mind. It was there. It was unpleasant. We felt trapped by it. It felt personal. And then with this process of, how does this feel? What's the mind resisting? That yucky feeling? Why Why go back? Why the content? Is it necessary? And then, like a bubble being popped. All of a sudden, when the mind really gets, not conceptually, but immediately, the insanity of aversion, you know, that it's not helpful, then the whole, like a house of cards, it just falls apart. We have to ask, you know, do we want to be right or do we want to be free? This is the process toward freedom. If we want to be right, you know, like I am bad or you are bad, then we stay on the level of our conceptual descriptions of what's bad or what needs to be fixed or what needs to be gotten rid of. But if we really are more interested in putting down the load, the weight that aversion is, the psychic weight that aversion is, then it's really a process of understanding. You can't go through this awakening process with a moment of aversion unless the mind, the mindfulness is relatively steady. If it's not steady, turn your attention to something that can steady your attention, like the breath, like loving kindness, like walking, or something that is more neutral. It doesn't help to keep looking at the anger when you're constantly getting identified as the one who's angry because you're basically reinforcing the identifying process, taking it personally. And that won't lead to the freedom. It will just lead to being more identified more times in the future. So you need a two-step. Redirect when you can't do the investigation. When there's enough steadiness to do the investigation, 
go right to the essence and ask the question, is the activity, the mental activity of aversion or self-hatred or whatever manifestation of aversion you're tending toward, is it necessary? Does it add any value? And the mind will see clearly, no. And it abandons it. So I'll leave it here. You have about 10 minutes. I would imagine cumulatively there's a lot of wisdom in the room having learned from aversion and both successes and failures. We learn from both. So if you have any questions or comments from your own practice to share with the group, please speak up, say your name, speak loudly so people can hear you. What comes to mind? Yeah, Lori. Could be. You know, you have to really, sometimes those sorts of statements are, are said in a very light way. They're not so charged, you know. So it's not so much on the surface what we say, but more, and this is a, this comes online with practice. The more sensitive we are, the more we know directly what the Buddha means by the word dukkha or stress. Contraction. So it's really the presence of suffering that tells, like, remember, we know there's a hindrance when perception is being distorted and it hurts. That's the dukkha piece. So noticing how perception is being distorted is not, that's more subtle. The fact that it hurts is a little bit more obvious. So when you say you hate something, then if that sort of catches your attention, then in a flash, just notice if there's a squeeze or a weight in the heart. Like, is the mind heavy or burdened? By, in a way that's related to, you know, that idea that I hate this. Yeah, thanks. Other thoughts to mind? Yes. And what the Buddha says about those moments is when the hindrances aren't obviously present, then one of the things we can do that's very useful is what is it that the mind is doing or the the way the mind is relating that is making it immune from the hindrances right now? Like what is it that's preventing anger or greed or dullness or restlessness or doubt from arising? What is it about the view? Is it the situation that's not triggering the anger? Or is it some kind of wisdom that's preventing the mind from being angry? Like the triggers for anger are still there. People are still as irritating as they've always were. But for some reason, the mind's not taking the bait. So what is the mind, how is the mind seeing things so that it doesn't take the bait to get angry? Because it's all about understanding. That's how we get more immune from aversion and the other hindrances. Thanks.
Yeah, at the back. Very. The health. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So if you didn't hear, Mary, she's just talking about, like, there's got to be some kind of health in the, whether we use that word anger or not, in that movement of the heart and mind that really wants to take care, really wants to be safe. And so maybe, you know, just to use a different word or phrase, maybe call that wholesome concern or wholesome uh, regret when when we realize like we're in the vicinity of making a mistake, doing something stupid, and then it's appropriate for a strong concern to arise in the mind. But we don't need to be angry or afraid, even though it looks very similar, because it's really an act of love. So there's really there's a difference between hatred and a kind of a fierce compassion. And we have to really, it's really about the motivation. Like one motivation is to destroy, and another motivation is to take care. So we can look at that. Because they may, on the surface, look the same. And the Buddha talked about that, you know, very explicitly about there are, there are places in life that demand a very, let's just say, a strong response. But it doesn't have to be hatred. So that's why a lot of people ask the question about social activism. You know, a lot of the injustices in the world seem to be asking for a powerful response. You know, it's not enough to just, well, that's too bad that the world is this way. It really seems to be asking for a powerful response, but can that response come out of a powerful feeling of care and love and wanting to take care of instead of, you idiots, you've destroyed the world or you're you know, oppressing people. I hate you. I want, I want you dead. Or It's like... And it, it really comes from understanding that all of the ignorance, all of the unskillful actions is the natural unfolding of what has been set in motion. So it's like I was saying before, you can't find the person to blame. You could say, okay, the head of this corporation is the one at fault. Well, it may be true that the head of the corporation or the leaders of the corporation are the ones we have to change. You know, Those are the ones whose minds we have to change. But their minds are the lawful unfolding of whatever came before, what was set in motion in their lives and in the culture. So it's not, it's not exactly right to say they're evil. We could say that you know, we can discern that the actions, the choices they're making are causing a lot of suffering. We can get some clarity about that kind of thing, that level of things. 
But it's too much to say they're bad and should be destroyed. Their actions need to be changed, need to be stopped. But they're just nature, right? The natural unfolding of causes and conditions. So we don't think too much about evil and and sort of good. It's more about what natural unfoldings are, are causing suffering and what natural unfoldings are causing happiness. And just understanding cause and effect in that way. So we don't have to turn it into a story of good and evil. Thanks, Mary. I think we have to leave it here unless you just have a quick comment, Doug. You can just put it out and I won't respond. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't mean that... Now here I am responding. <laughs> I'll just leave it. Because it's, it's just a great comment and question to contemplate. And let's just take a few seconds. And it's really okay to let go of all the words. Not, don't feel like you have to hold on to anything. Body can be relaxed. We can just take a breath or maybe two breaths together. And some sense of this heart, this mind, being part of this awakening process. And really grateful. Grateful for all the women, all the men, all the people before us who've been part, who woke up to whatever degree and shared what they've learned. And now we're the recipients and it's our turn, waking up as best we can in our busy lives, finding real peace and love wisdom there and sharing it natural ways in our lives and being part of the causes and conditions leading to happiness and peace and freedom from suffering. Thanks again everyone for coming tonight. Really nice to be together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org.